God punished Jesus through the inflicting punishment of man so that God may through the suffering and punishment of Christ bring mankind and those who believe to peace with himself. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. I thought this morning it would be good for our kids to hear a little bit about the topic of baptism. And if you'll go with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Most churches today are at least established churches that have a building and all of these things have a baptistry like we do. Sometimes it's warm. Sometimes it gets, you know, sometimes the pastor forgets to turn the heater on. Or he remembers in his bed at 5 o'clock in the morning. So he gets up and comes to church and gets it on just in time. Sometimes, like this morning, it's warm on the top and cold on the bottom because of the way the heater works. I'm sure you all noticed that. I remember one time when I was uh, younger, my dad was a pastor of a church plant in Georgia. And so for baptisms, we we didn't yet have a, a building, and we would go down to Lake Lanier. I don't know if you know Georgia, but Lake Lanier is the largest man-made lake in the south or something like that. It's one of the top five largest man-made lakes in the country. And um, It is also, which is important to consider in baptism, about the dirtiest lake you could swim in. But that's where we go for baptisms. And I remember one particular time a guy was getting baptized. And this was maybe 2003, 2004, 2005, preceding the invention of smartphones. Yeah, kids, teenagers, I was there before iPhones were made. I'm really old, right? Uh, But we still had flip phones. You guys know what those are? All right. So, um, so this guy, burner phone, yeah, so this guy gets down in the water, and you can see, he goes like this, and there's panic on his face, and he remembered too late that he'd forgotten to unload his wallet, and his phone, and his keys, and all of these things. Well, this morning, we're going to read about a, t- a true story in the book of Acts regarding the doctrine of baptism. And it was outdoors. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch didn't lose his phone in the water, all right? But we're going to read this morning about the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and we're going to make some important observations regarding the doctrine of baptism. I am not going to read our entire text. We're going to read it progressively as we study it together. 
But perhaps you're with us this morning and you've heard baptism talked about a number of different ways. You know, different church traditions do baptism differently. I'm going to address some of those things. I'm going to tell you why we baptize as a, as a step of obedience and identification of the church and all these things. But, but, but most importantly, when we think about the idea of baptism, it's a call to make sure that we're truly in Christ. It reminds us that something needs to happen on the inside before we express it before the congregation. This morning, I want to show you from the passage of Scripture that since God has not kept salvation from you, you should not keep yourself from baptism. Since God has not kept from you salvation, you should not keep yourself from baptism. In other words, if God has provided for you salvation, you should respond in obedience in believers' baptism. Let's pray. We'll begin to work through this text together. Father, we thank you this morning for your great love. We thank you for all that are here this morning. I know many guests are here to observe baptism. I'm thankful for that. I pray now that as we approach the Word of God, you would remind them the most important reason for our gathering. You would inform them the most important reason for our gathering is to worship God, to worship you, to make much of you, to acknowledge your great worth. And we acknowledge your great worth first by noting the power of the gospel. And so this morning, I pray that the gospel would go forth clearly. And if there's any here who've not claimed the name of Christ for salvation, that you would use this text to bring them to salvation. I pray that I pray that more than anything, this would be seen not as an opportunity to hear something we really need to hear that might get us through the week or help us cope with hard times, but, but more importantly, that this would be a time of true worship as the Word is declared and as, as it is received. I ask for your help. I ask for focus both for the preacher and for the listener, for concentration on the thing that we need concentrate, concentrate most, the Word of God, and help us to receive it biblically as it is, the Word of God and not of man. And I ask these things through Christ. Amen. Start reading with me, if you would. I changed my mind. Actually, I'm going to read the whole text. So start reading with me, if you would. Starting at verse 26, we're going to read down to verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court of official Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. He opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. 
Who can describe his generation from his life taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Beginning in verses 26 to 31, I want to note first of all in this text that there's an evangelistic commissioning. There's an evangelistic commissioning. So let's talk about who we're talking about a little bit here. Who is Philip? Well, Philip is introduced to us in chapter 6. He is one of the men appointed by the church to care for the needs of the church, or we would call them deacons. Now, Philip takes on a specific role in the book of Acts as specifically a a man who was given towards evangelism or the giving of the gospel. And so he is traveling on God's commission. The Spirit sends him. Look at me, verse 26 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. It's important to note where this passage falls. This is a transitional text. Chapter 8 begins for us the initiation of the ministry to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus says, "'You will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth.'" And that verse actually gives us a geographical outline for the entire book. The book breaks down through the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this passage actually begins the transition from ministry in Judea and Samaria to ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you look with me at chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved this execution, and there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The middle of chapter 8, we're introduced to someone who is a Gentile, an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this Ethiopian has a very important job. He's high up in the official of the official court of the queen of Ethiopia. She, or he, excuse me, cares for all his or her treasure. In other words, he's the steward of all her treasure. And he is traveling by the Lord's commission, and he hears something that gets his attention. He he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This is the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch would would have been what we call a a God-fearing Gentile. In other words, that he he worshipped the God of Israel, though he needed clarity on the true gospel. So he actually had gone to Jerusalem to worship God, and he was journeying home when 
Philip heard him, and he heard him reading out loud. You say, why did he read out loud? Well, um, it actually aided his concentration and aided his readability. Reading at this time was much harder because text wasn't as clear. And so they would read out loud to begin to decipher or make sense of what they were reading. And so he was reading out loud, and Philip heard him. He was reading a text of the Bible, namely Isaiah chapter 53, the servant song that begins in chapter 52, verse 12. And so, so the, the Ethiopian eunuch, this God-fearing Gentile, is on his way back from Jerusalem. God's Spirit, through an angel, sends Philip. He overhears him. And then he, he either chases the chariot or the chariot stops. We're not exactly sure, but we know that he runs up to the Ethiopian eunuch and he asks, do you understand what you are reading? Something that may, many of you may have asked yourself why you were reading the Bible. Do I even understand this? And Philip asks him this question. The Ethiopian eunuch responds with an apropos answer. How can I unless someone guides me? In other words, I need help understanding this. I need someone who can teach me this to teach me this. And either he perceived that Philip did understand or Philip said that he could because he invites him into the chariot with him and they begin to ride along together. And then in verse 32, we have the text that is given for us. So we notice, first of all, an evangelistic commissioning. The servant of God is sent to give the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so begins in verse 32, the text. And I'm actually going to have you turn with me to Isaiah 53. I don't always have you turn back, but I want you to see this text with me. So this is the passage that was being read by the Ethiopian eunuch. And so if you'll go with me back to chapter 53, this is one of, of Isaiah. This is one of the more commonly known texts in the book of Isaiah. I want you to note, though, that this particular servant song or the prophecies of Isaiah regarding the servant of God that, that is messianic, that is Yahweh, is fulfilled in, or that is uh, fulfilled in Christ, that's Christ, begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Verse 13, look, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So we're talking about an individual. My servant shall act wide, wisely. Verse 14, As many were astonished at you, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, what is this referring to? Obviously, this is referring to the suffering of Messiah, the suffering of this servant. This is referring explicitly, in every sense of that term, to the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Brother, sister in Christ, you know this, that Christ took your suffering so that you could experience His joy. He took your pain so that you could know true healing. He took your stripes so that you could be made whole. My friend, if you're with us this morning and if you've not claimed the name of Christ, someone has died in your place so that you need not die eternally. Someone has suffered so that you need not suffer forever. 
verse 50, chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is, again, referring to the Messiah, which, of course, we know in fulfillment is Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Hey, kids, teenagers, you know what Jesus Christ looked like? Anybody else? He was a normal looking person. He had no form of beauty that we should desire Him. You know, that says something about what we should value regarding Christ versus what the world teaches you you should value. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces literally means they turn away. You say, well, when did they turn away? Likely on the cross when he was so marred beyond human form, it was a pain, pain to look at him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Christ takes the suffering of man, and how does man treat Christ? Rejection, mockery. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement, listen, or the punishment that brought us peace. God punished Jesus through the inflicting punishment of man so that God may through the suffering and punishment of Christ bring mankind and those who believe to peace with Himself. And with His wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. We follow our own flesh. We follow our own desires. We do what we want to do. And Christ took our sin on himself that we may be brought to freedom and salvation. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So this is the text that the Ethiopian eunuch reads. Isaiah 53 regarding the suffering servant of Jesus Christ. 
that is Jesus Christ. And my friends, we're about to talk about baptism, but this is the most important part of this passage. Because you do not get to new life. You do not get to baptism. You do not get to a physical expression. You do not get the image without the suffering of Jesus. There is no salvation without Christ's suffering. There is no acceptance without Christ's rejection. There is no making sinners whole without the tearing of the flesh and heart of Christ. So, Philip provides some biblical clarification on this very important Old Testament passage. And my friend, maybe this morning you need, you need some clarification in your life. You need some clarity. Because right now you're living in sin. Paul says in Ephesians that, that we're dead in sin. We need to be brought to new life because sin not only leads to death, we are actually dead in sin, separate from God. This is why we do sin, because it's who we are. This is why we break God's law. This is why we lust. This is why we lie. This is why we cheat. This is why we say words that we shouldn't say and treat people in a way that we shouldn't treat them. Because we're dead in sin, and we need to be brought to new life. And there is no, no new life except to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. In sin we die, and in Jesus we live. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And so the, prophet, so, so the, the, the eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch wants to know, the, 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 the Ethiopian official wants to know, is he talking about Isaiah or is he talking about somebody else? And what does Philip do? He starts with the Scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, my friend, who's not normally with us, you're visiting with us this morning, you can turn on the television and you can find a preacher who'll stand up before you and he's got a really big smile and he's got really nice hair and he's really engaging and he's really rich and he's got good news about how you can be rich too. That's not the good news that this is talking about because what did he just say? What is this good news? Someone suffered. Is that good news? Well, if they suffered for you, it's good news. If they took your sin and God's wrath for you, it's good news. Do you remember Jesus after he's raised and, and, he, and he's walking disciples back to Jerusalem. And what does it say that Jesus does at the end of Luke? He opened the scriptures and he taught them all things concerning himself. 
You do not need this morning the Bible to give you a little chicken soup for your soul or nugget to get you through the week or pump you up so you can face life's difficulties. You need the Bible to show you the good news about Jesus Christ. That in sin there is death, but in Christ there is life. The substitutionary work of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 11. Without me, unless you believe, you will die in your sins. But unless you believed that Jesus died for you, there is life in him, there is life more abundantly. And so they continue their journey. Presumably, the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ. He must have understood it, and he must have called out to Christ for salvation, because look what happens next. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So thirdly, I want to close with just a few observations about baptismal consistency baptismal consistency. And I use this word consistency because I want to show you some things about baptism within the whole of the book. Look, he comes to faith in Christ and his immediate response is, I need to be baptized. I, I, I understand what happens next. Or he understood that because if he knew the, 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 the pattern of the New Testament church. Or what I think what happened is Philip actually told him, this is what you do. You get saved, and then when you get saved, you get baptized. Now, we don't, obviously, we don't have all of Philip's conversation here. We know there's a much longer conversation than what we have recorded. It was the assumed, typical pattern of the New Testament church, that you were saved, and you were baptized, and you were added to the church. Listen, there is no category in the New Testament for unbaptized believer. Did you hear that? There's no category in the New Testament for unbaptized believer. So we know, first of all, that there is an assumption of baptism in verse 36. It's just, I need to get baptized. What prevents me? Here's water. Now, there's lots of interesting ideas here about this passage. Some people say on the route that, that they were taking south, there would have been no water. So Jesus, or God created a pool. It's possible, Okay. History actually shows us there were certain times of the year there was water in this uh, particular route. So I, I tend to think that there was water. Nevertheless, there's water. And they see it. And he says, what's preventing me from getting baptized? I know what I'm supposed to do. I've, I've called out to Christ for salvation. I'm converted. And now we get baptized. You say you said it's the pattern and then there's no unbaptized believers in the New Testament. What if I just want to get saved and not get baptized? Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Peter said to them, this is the founding of the church. It's very important you understand the context of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's the founding of the church. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people. Uh, Peter the apostle stands up and preaches and calls these people to repentance, and a lot of people get saved, several thousand. This is what he says. This is his call after preaching this beautiful, masterful message about how Christ fulfills the Old Testament and he is the Christ, the one that you killed is the Christ. This is what he says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Those are not the same thing. They're different things. Repent. It's the first thing. Turn from your sin 
and be baptized, which is why we say it is not a means of saving grace. It is an evidence of saving grace. No one got saved in the water today. And when I baptize somebody, I make sure they understand that, that they're not getting saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word, that is the repentance, and were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. When they believed, we were right here. When they believed, this is those in Judea who came to Christ. This is the very same chapter, Judea and Samaria who came to Christ. Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God, and they were, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Same passage. Acts chapter 18, verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. I just read four verses pertaining to salvation. That's only four of them. That, that shows us saved people get baptized. This is the, the undeniable pattern in the New Testament, the first church. The second thing about baptism, that the, the, the second thing in the text that clearly teaches us regarding baptism is the idea of immersion, the idea of immersion. You say, well, where do you see this? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. They both went down into the water. And when they came up, next verse, out of the water. Now, I want to be really careful here, okay? Because I know there's, maybe there's a chance you come from a different church tradition or you grew up in a different kind of church or whatever, and somebody sprinkled you or poured water on you as a kid. I am not poking. I'm not, I don't know you, okay? So don't take it personally. At Grace Bible Church, we baptize by immersion. That means someone goes all the way into the water and they come all the way back out. Why? Well, this is very logical. They went down in the water and they came back out of the water. You say, well, that's, I mean, whatever. I mean, does that, why, why can't you pour? All right, the word baptized here, and he baptized him. You know what that word is? It's literally the word immersed. He immersed him. Okay, so he went under the water and he came back out. He said, I'm still not convinced. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11. And Christ, having died when we were, listen, buried with him in baptism. Did you catch that? Buried with him in baptism. Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What happens if you don't immerse somebody? They're not all the way dead. The reason we go all the way under the water is because it teaches we were all the way dead in our sin. Like Jesus was all the way dead in the tomb before God's Spirit raised Him from the dead. Have you noticed the last two years we've had a baptism? We've had baptisms immediately following the week of Easter. I didn't do that on accident. Because we celebrated last week new life by the Spirit, right? Buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Well, how was Jesus raised? By God's Spirit. How was a dead person in sin raised? By God's Spirit. The picture of immersion is that we were all the way dead in the tomb with Christ. And now we are fully alive in His resurrection. 
So if you don't immerse, you lose the entire point. My friend, this morning, if you're with us and you've not claimed Christ for salvation, you're dead in sin, but God's Spirit can raise you to new life. And then the third thing regarding, self, regarding baptism in the text is the idea of confirmation. The idea of confirmation. Look with me at verse 39. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. I mean, what just happened? Philip's there, and then he gone, right? So the Spirit took him somewhere. This is amazing. All right, Spirit's like, we're done. Let's go somewhere else. Good job, moving on. It was awesome. He saw him no more. But why does Luke, the writer of the book, point to the specific presence of the Spirit in this text? Acts chapter 1, verse 5. This is what Jesus says. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the confirmation of what Jesus says in chapter 1 verse 6, you will, receive, you will be witnesses when you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit comes and confirms the message of Christ and confirms the effectiveness of the gospel and then they get saved and then they get baptized. Acts chapter 11 verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you, this is Peter, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit confirms the work of baptism because as the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, so the Spirit regenerates the dead soul. The act of baptism praises God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for their work in the gospel. And the Spirit confirms this. And so my question this morning is very simple. It is the Ethiopian eunuch's question. What prevents you from being baptized? All right. Kiddos, listen to me really quick. Little kids. Older, older kids. You don't get baptized because you think it's fun to swim in the baptismal. Okay, It's not just about getting up there and getting in the water. But kids, seriously, this is why I kept you here and you've been doing great. You've been drawn. You've been paying attention. I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. So if you're a little kid with us this morning, or you're a big kid, because I know, no kid's little. You're big kids, right? You know why you should get baptized if you've been saved? Because the church wants to see that you were dead in sin, and you've been raised to walk in new life. Dead in sin, and raised to walk in new life. So, so kiddos, listen, this is really important. I want you to talk to mom and dad about baptism, okay? On your way home, I want you to talk to mom and dad about baptism. Now, mom and dad, I've just done something for you. I've given you an opportunity to talk to your kids about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do it. You say, well, my kid's not saved yet. Then talk about baptism so you have to talk about the gospel. Don't save them, okay? Don't pressure them into salvation. You don't save them. God does. But talk about the gospel. 
All right, now not the kiddos. Everybody, which we're all just older kids, right? You haven't been baptized. What's keeping you? What's keeping you? I can't get up in front of everybody. If you really want to do something, you can. I promise you. If you really want to do something, you can. I mean, you saw how nervous they were, but didn't they do awesome today? Everybody got through it. Everybody's alive. I haven't drowned anybody. (laughs) Yet? There's a few of you that, I'm just kidding. I'm afraid. I understand. I understand. There's things I'm afraid of. If you really want to do something, you can do it. I promise you, I'm flexible. If you come and you say, this bothers me, this bothers me, this bothers me, we will find a way to make it happen. But you need to do it. Okay? I love you, but you need to do it. And there's one more, one more group of people I want to address. Maybe what's preventing you from baptism is you're still dead in sin. You're still dead in sin. You're still that sheep wandering around just trying to find your way in life. Doing your own thing, trying one thing after another, realizing it doesn't work because, man, life is tough. So you try money, and it runs out, and you can make more, and then you're not happy because, you know, you want all these things that that more money didn't quite provide, and so you realize money doesn't work, and then you try relationships, and so you go from one person to another person to another person, and you realize they don't work out because you put all your hopes and dreams in those person. They constantly let you down, and so you try a job, and then that job's frustrating, and so, but then you're not happy with your compensation, and, and then you're just trying one thing after another, and then you try food, and it lets you down, and you try drugs, and it lets you down, you try alcohol, and it lets you down, you try affairs, and they let you down, because nothing apart from Jesus Christ satisfies. Nothing. Nothing apart from Jesus Christ brings you security. Because maybe you think, it's not, it's, I don't want to just be happy. I want to be safe. I want to feel good about life. Nothing keeps you secure except Jesus Christ. Everything in this world fades away, but Jesus always satisfies. So maybe this morning, baptism is the next step. You need to come to faith in Christ. You're a dead person in sin who needs to be brought alive in the Spirit. 